Welcome to Unsupervised Learning, a security, AI, and meaning-focused podcast that looks at how best to thrive as humans in a post-AI world. It combines original ideas, analysis, and mental models to bring not just the news, but why it matters and how to respond. All right, Gabe, welcome to Unsupervised Learning. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. Sweet. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to do this is because like every time we talk, we seem to go off into uh, some pretty cool conversations about multiple different AI topics, about security, about ethics and stuff like that. And I just wanted to like have one of them on camera so uh, other people can benefit from it. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so could you start off just by talking about uh, what you've been working on, what your background is and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm originally from the Bay Area. Uh, I, I don't have a traditional background in, uh, in computer science. I kind of crowbarred my way into information security. Um, and I got some some great opportunities to work with some very talented people. been in the industry for about 10 years now and mostly focused on threat intelligence. But I've uh, had the good luck to be exposed to a really wide variety of uh, security incidents, um, formerly at Apple and then OpenAI. And now I'm working on my own thing. Um, and I really, I, I'm so excited to be here for this conversation because security really deeply involves ethics and safety. So uh, very much looking forward to exploring that with you. Yeah, very cool. So um, that takes us right into the first one, which really made me want to have this conversation. And it's basically around this this conversation that seems to be out there around accelerationists and D cells or A cells and D cells, like all this terminology. And then like with the D cells, the extreme version of that being like doomers, uh, which is like the term for it. And that pivots right into like Yudkowsky's arguments and um stuff that he supposedly said. I'm not really sure if he actually said the stuff about the nuclear bombing and stuff like that, but he, he's generally very extreme around like, oh, we need to control the GPUs, right? We, we've got to have absolute control. This thing is going to kill us. And I'm especially thinking about his conversation with uh, Lex on, on his podcast, where it was pretty bleak. And I'm just curious, like, do you think this, this is the right framing, the A-cell versus D-cell? And like, what are your overall thoughts on this? And, and I guess Yudkowsky's, um viewpoint as well. Yeah, it's a really good question. It's so hard to thread the needle on this stuff too, because the information space is, is just incredibly polluted. Um, but we're, we're in the middle of this technological renaissance. We find LLMs to be extremely useful. They have a lot of these qualities that uh, we, we think are characteristics or features that arise in systems, but are, are not evident in the individual components of that system. Uh, we call these emergent qualities. And the, a lot of a lot of these qualities have have gotten people to say, well, what else are these things capable of? And then, you know, like, should we be worried about some of these capabilities? Should we be concerned? Um, the accelerationist versus deaccelerationist groups, uh, they're really fascinating. So, you know, you have uh, on, on one side, uh, the accelerationist, on the other side, the deaccelerationist, and you think of these two groups as being very much in opposition. But in, in fact, it's very important to point out that both of these groups actually share the same core belief. And really? that's that we're on the cusp of building this intelligence that's greater than our own, and that's fundamentally going to change humanity. Um, so they 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 believe the same things uh and oh know. interesting so so they both believe that it's about to happen and when we say it's about to happen 
what that's AGI is, is that what they're worried about? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if the accelerationists are worried much about AGI. I think they're, they're very much uh, welcoming it, but they, they believe that there's, there is this advanced intelligence. Uh, we're, we're getting closer and closer to creating it. And so, you know, from, from the accelerationist point of view, uh, they believe it's going to bring a new era in humanity. So they're extremely optimistic about the technology. They're eager to hasten all of the benefits of those new breakthroughs. And, you know, these are like developers who want to go very fast. They want to incorporate new technologies. They're financially motivated in some cases. Um, there's individuals who really believe that, you know, AI is going to be better at decision-making than human beings. Um, and that if, you know, we, we further uh, move down the, the side of extreme optimism, there's those that believe, you know, artificial general intelligence is going to usher in a utopia. Um, so these are, these are like, that's an extreme, you know, uh, optimistic view. Um, and on the other side, you know, the, the doomers are concerned with an extreme intelligence because they, you know, have this belief that in every case where there's been a, an intelligence that's smarter uh, than, you know, the next smartest intelligence on the, on the planet, that it, you know, works to remove that intelligence. Uh, and they're, they're deeply concerned about, uh, about this. So this framing is basically built around the same general idea. And that idea may not be correct. We don't know how far we are uh, from artificial general intelligence or even if LLMs are going to allow us to achieve that. But the, the the way that we've been having discussions about safety, about security, about the dangers and risks posed by these new technologies is all centered around uh, this these two views that you know people perceive as being in opposition, but actually um, are are closer together than than we might previously assume. Interesting. So they all think it's imminent, essentially. So they're very similar in that way. Where do you fall on that? First of all, how how important do you think the term AGI is versus ASI and the others? I mean, ASI to me just sounded like a rebranding of AGI, um, uh, you know, a way of making like, you know, further reinforcing like, hey, this thing isn't just going to be generally intelligent. It's going to be super intelligent. Like, and we need people to realize just how smart it's actually going to be. So that, you know, AGI, ASI, this, it's, these are two acronyms for more or less the same thing. And, you know, the, the, it, it, either one that you want to use could be, they could, they might as well be interchangeable. Um, is that because once it achieves AGI, you think it's just going to move really quickly into ASI, or you just think it's a distinction without a difference? I don't. I don't even know how helpful it is to draw a distinction around that because we have no idea what that looks like. Mm. So we're we're like trying to describe something, but in we're not describe we're describing it in a useful way for philosophy or for science fiction and and I really don't want to paint with too broad a brush there's the people who are involved in this work they they do take it very seriously uh you know they I don't want to cast aspersions upon them but th they're describing something that is really hard to it, it, it's not it's not measurable so it's mm. it's very hard to be like concrete or to do things like risk analysis or yeah. um you know safety work uh based on uh this description of this thing which is just you know godlike or powerful in ways that we can't uh, can't comprehend mm. okay interesting so how much do you think the doomer mentality is really affecting things like uh, we saw the drama happen on seasons one through four of the Sam Altman show uh, recently. And uh, 
how much of that was like Yudkowsky related, do you think? I mean, how, how much do you think Yudkowsky's ideas are having an effect on the overall space? Well, I, I think it's important to separate like an individual from the ideas too, because it's sure. not it's not the case that like this guy was you know like th- thinking like oh like I'm gonna like oust Sam Altman from the you know open AI. Right. I think that publicly in the statements that the, the company has made and just in the the buzz on on Twitter, which is which was wild for a few days, it's that. You know, there there really is the sentiment that you know these these companies are 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 concerned about moving too fast, and that's an internal debate that happens. So, you know, they they do model valuations, they do testing, they do you know they have deployment schedules, but you know, fundamentally there are you know there there are people at, at you know these companies. And it's not just OpenAI; it's all these frontier companies who believe that. You know the the safest thing to do is to not make the model to begin yeah. with, um, and I think that's a real that's a real conflict because you have these developers who are just so incentivized to make new product and to ship really quickly, yeah. And you marry that up with this like extreme caution, and it just doesn't it doesn't match. So you have two parts yeah. of you know a, a company going completely opposite directions. And I think that's you know kind of where the rubber hits the road is um, is in these like larger larger questions about like well what's the mission of this company is it achieving its mission or um, and that's that's where you know as, as an outside observer that that's where I saw the uh, the, uh, the the arguments kind of coming coming uh, coming to head. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I would say I'm probably in like the I don't know eighty percent acceleration because to me it's all ex- a spectrum. And like going back to our original topic, I don't think there's anyone who actually is full doomer. I mean, Yukowski might be pretty close, but even he, I think, wants AGI to happen. I, hasn't he been trying to make AGI happen for years? Like to me, he's like somewhat pro AI, right? And there's hardly anyone who's like go as fast as possible with no breaks. So it's like to me, everyone's like on the spectrum. I'm probably like 80, 85% fast and then with caution which seems like it's very similar to like altman or at least that's how i'm interpreting it um where would you be on on a spectrum like that yeah i guess i'd want to answer that question by asking another question sure about like uh like where 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 are you on the spectrum of like expanding internet access or you know where are you on the spectrum uh like if if we could go back in time back to arpanet and ask the question of hey like can we rapidly accelerate the development of the internet like would that do you, do you think that would be a like a good call to make yes in that case i would be like a 98% um or a 99.9% because i wouldn't have 10% or 20% cut out for breaks and safety because I don't see the downside. Whereas here I do see more of a downside. That's why it would be more like a 75 to 85%. Yeah. And you see the downside because the framing of the issue is one of like existential risk to society, right? Yeah. Like the argument on one side is it's going to kill all of us. And the argument on the other side is, oh, wow, look at this cute art that we can make using LLMs now. So I just like, this is why I think the framing is so messed up because we're just like, we're like, 
the con the conversation we're having is, oh, do you think that we should build something that should destroy that could destroy society? Right. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, I think too often the doomer use case <clears throat> is is uh, couched as the you know Terminator or uh, paper clips, which is just like so played out, and uh, it's so obvious that it's bad that it just makes everyone want to pull the brakes. I think um, a more realistic doomer scenario is a collection of much less bad things all like accumulating. So loss of trust in society uh, combined with like super empowered criminals, uh, both in the digital space, plus like, uh, you know, really smart drones that are taking out people or whatever. Like, it seems like a whole bunch of smaller stuff combined gets you to a more realistic bad place than like Terminator or whatever, or, or, or everyone becomes paperclip. So what are your thoughts on the difference between those two? I mean, I, I, I would agree completely with that statement. The the chance that we have this like truly catastrophic thing happen is very low. Yeah. Um, and I like, I don't even know how to measure it. And you know, I, I'm working in AI safety and being like, okay, well, like, how do we measure this thing? And this, the thing that you're trying to measure can't, but you can't measure it because it doesn't exist yet. Um, yeah. And I want to call out for the audience that like, you've spent real time working on these real problems. Like, at, at these companies, right? So it's it's not like theoretical. You're you're batting this around. You actually dealt with this stuff, so so you know it's it's hard to sort of capture and encapsulate. Um, yeah, it's interesting that um, everyone wants to go to that really nasty use case. I I really much prefer a threat model approach where we could actually write them down. Like when you write down the thing and you say, okay, the worst case, best case. What are some examples of it going wrong? What are some mitigations? To me, you're not really having a, a logical conversation until you lay that out, right? And it, it, to me, it's fairly easy to do that for like autonomous drones that can't be hit by EMPs or, or um, you know, deep fakes go really crazy and people can't trust the politics. Like, even those are really complex, but at least you can write them down. But it's like, oh, super AGI turns everyone into paper clips. It just seems way too science fiction-y. It's a thought experiment. And it, it's a useful yeah. one insofar as it's like, well, how do you model something that you can't predict? Which is like, that's great. Like, what are the, what are all the worst case scenarios? Let's see if we can, we can think of all of them. And then hopefully we'll be able to avoid, uh, you know, creating something that's capable of all this stuff. Um, you know, one of the, one of the positive things to come out of that was, uh, you know, deceptive AI. Like it, it can, can you create models that, uh, deceive people or deceive certain people that don't deceive other people? Like, yeah. There's there's some really promising research there, but the the framing that framing is framing of uh, approaching a problem to say, well, what's the worst case scenario? It's not you know like, like you can't use that to conduct business. You can't use that to to you know build products. Um, it's it's really more of a a, a philosophical um, belief system to engage in. And to your point about threat modeling, like how do people who work in disaster relief do this? You know they. Right. They make the threat model and then they like figure out where all the resources are that they would need. And they're like, okay, well, let's make sure we have a plan to address this if it does happen. Um, yeah. which I think is, you know, the, the, the best that we can do. Yeah. And would you agree that basically if something gets really, really bad where it's like, it's tricking all humanity, it's building a robots, it, you know, it's siphoning off our resources. It's doing something that's really heading towards like Yukowski bad. There's so many opportunities for us to detect and stop that, aren't there? 
Is yeah, I, I mean, like, how, like, do we think that's going to happen in, immediately? <laughs> like, well, the more immediate it is, the easier it is to detect, right? It yeah. seems like we would have opportunities to notice this. We've never seen, like, anything successfully just go from idea to it works without having so many failures. And it seems like each one of those failures could be loud and just, like, cause us to turn it off in, like, a, a less dangerous mode. I mean, that's a great point. To add to that, just think of the incentives of, like, companies or even just random developers who are working with LLMs. Their incentive is towards hype. Like positive hype, yeah. negative hype, they're they're both useful to them. Like if oh something's so incredible that we must fear it, wow, it must be pretty good. Like, yeah, wow, something's so incredible that it does all of our all of our work for us. Like that's even better. Great. Yeah, but, you know, like there's there's no like moderate middle ground that people can fall onto because there's very little incentive for people to say, hey, like here's where these models fail, to, or to come out and be like, this is. Like we we tested these and we think they're really good at this, but boy, do they suck at this stuff. And yeah. like like nobody's gonna want to release that because it's not it it, it doesn't it, it doesn't there's no incentive to do that. Um, there's some incentive from you know like public institutions, researchers who are testing capabilities, but you know that that they're kind of like small in this environment uh, where mm-hmm. you know like only the most pitched voices are are receiving the uh, the attention. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, where do you see like really practical current instantiations of AI tooling right now? Like what have you seen where you're like, okay, they get it. They're actually making something good. Yeah. Um, So I I, I say this a lot to people. Um, I have a course that I teach. I have, uh, and I say all the time, find discrete tasks that you can automate away. Find a discrete task that you can describe to an individual. And then take that and turn that into an automation using an LLM. I think those are the 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 most basic, the easiest to do. It immediately shows people what the value of these tools are in a very personal way because it's a task that you no longer have to do. Uh, and it also shows the value in you know a way that you can measure because you can say, okay, well, how did it do on task performance this week versus last week? Mm. Um, I think that the the current driver behind most AI tools that we see on the, on the market today is just rapid commercialization. Uh, there's a, a huge push towards trying to, you know, develop chatbots for everything. It's like everybody in their third quarter got the memo that yeah. said, Hey, I need AI in this product right now. And they're like, Oh, I'll just sprinkle a little chatbot on there. Oh, yeah, lot, yeah. And like, that's not great <laughs> because it's, it represents like a misunderstanding of what the what the technology is capable of. It represents just the, you know the, the easiest veneer of business win, um, and, and it doesn't. It also doesn't like bring out the real value of some of these tools in places like advanced science or education or healthcare. I mean, when I when I teach this course, I tell people pull up you know the LLM chatbot right next to you. Because any question that you're going to ask me, you can probably just ask it and you'll get a better response faster. We won't waste yeah. class time. And then you can just like their questions get so much more specific. Mm. Um, I've done the course with that. I've done the course without that. And it's, it's so much better. Uh, at, like just as a basic education tool. Yeah, th- that makes sense. So, so 
I like this idea of um, chatbot versus task um, because you're right. And it's been very frustrating to me. Everyone just thinks AI is chat GPT. And specifically when they think I'm bringing AI to my product, they think a chatbot that somehow answers questions about the product. And it's like that, it, like you said, it's so surface. So give me an example of some tasks. What are some granular tasks or pipelines or workflows that you think um, could really use help here? Yeah. Um, well, one of them is just bringing context. So it, like, let's take the case of, you know, like a, a security operations center and, you know, you have your, you have your SOC analyst, you have your L1 SOC analyst, and they're you know, sitting in a chair, looking at alerts and trying to triage them. And, you know, for, for everybody who's been there, who's done that job, you never have enough context about the alerts that you're getting. Like you can always have a little bit more context yeah. and boy, would it be great to be able to ask a follow-up question without having to escalate before you, you know, cut a ticket that needs to be triaged. Um, there's just, there's so many opportunities to put it, put LLMs into workflows to say, okay, like you're doing like, we, we flagged that this command was uh, suspicious but now it's up to the analyst to interpret why it's suspicious. And that analyst may not have context for the operating system the command's running on mm-hmm. or the part of the business that that you know specific box is in, or even just, you know, the uh the like who's who's running this? What time was it? Like they have that's all yeah. stuff that they have to pick up and then do the analysis themselves. And that takes a lot of time. And it's so helpful just to have an LLM in there where you feed the data to and you're like, okay, like. When the analyst is looking at this, what's a summarization of the things that have happened? And like, mm. given this operating environment and these alert structures, what was is is this an alert that's high priority or low priority? The yeah. LLM is going to nail that, and it's it's going to have the context based on the data that it's given. And just that little bit of optimization takes so much of a cognitive load off of your analyst. And there's more complex ones you can make too. Data retrieval is probably the the biggest area of innovation right now in terms of LLMs because everybody has a bunch of siloed data, and the 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 value of the LLM is that people can ask natural language questions and then have those be interpreted into either queries, searched in an embedding space, and pull back the necessary documentation that they need so that their query and the documentation can both be run at inference. And that just provides a, a very tailored but grounded answer for the individual. I mean, this is this is stuff that businesses all over the world are like, wow, like I've got a lot of data. Boy, it would be great if I could access it more easily. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think everyone's struggling to get this. Um, I think being able to fully articulate and granularly articulate all the different tasks that a business has, I feel like that's pre-consulting that they're going to need to do. It's almost like they don't know what to apply AI to. They don't know what the AI could do. They also don't know what to apply it to. Because I feel like a lot of businesses don't have their specific tasks and workflows like broken out. Whereas if they were to do that, they'd be like, holy crap, I've got 39 of these. I really, you know, I would love to have context here or the ability to ask questions here. Um, It's so ripe for somebody to come in and just like build that for them. And I'm sure... Many companies are doing that. Many consultancies are doing that. I just wonder what the quality level is. Um, and, and so sort of building on that, if you take like an average security program and you've got like, you've got threat intel, you've got, um, you know, detection response, you've got 
all these different areas, uh, endpoint security, um, corporate security, what sections can benefit the most from this? And like, what are some of the tasks or workflows within them that you think are like the ripest? So any task that can be modeled as a runbook for an individual to pursue can be modeled for an LLM. And when you think about it in this way, you know, like if you ask uh, somebody in management, you know, like, oh, like, what are all the processes that your team does that, you know, could be automated? That that person is going to give a terrible answer. But if you grab the individual who's working with those processes and you say, what is the, what's, what, what do you find yourself doing every single day? that you wish you could automate that person will know exactly what to say they'll 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 say it to you and then they'll tell you another one and then they'll tell you another one after that and so like you know for all the consultants out there who are doing this work like please just go find the people who actually have the processes to automate give them access to you know an llm to you know encourage them to to experiment with it um you only pay in tokens, you know, you're not onboarding another staff member, but suddenly that person who has to do that task every day has unlimited interns, just unlimited amount of interns that they can task. So, you know, the, the, I think the model here that uh, companies are going to struggle to, uh, to implement is that the, the automations that are going to give them the most wins are going to come from the bottom up and not from the top down. Hmm. So say more about that. Yeah, you have companies who say, oh, well, we want, you know, uh, all of our documents to be, we have documents in like five different, you know, silos and we want them all to be in the same place. So like, what's, what is our AI strategy here? Do we like tell all these people to sanitize their data and send it to us? Like, what do we do? And, you know, it's the, the question that I always pose back is, well, what is the problem that you're actually trying to solve? Like, yes. are you are you trying to solve like data availability? Well, what teams are constantly being asked to provide data to make it available? And in those cases, like, what does an eighty percent solution look like? Because that's what you're going to get with the LLM. You're going to get like an eighty percent solution, and then you make another eighty percent solution, and then you make another five eighty percent solutions, mm. and suddenly you have something that's really robust and that you can count on. But you know, it's, it's improving a human process. Yeah. So, so you're, you're one of the best threat Intel people that I know. So give me an example of a threat Intel task that, that this could apply to. Uh, uh, collections and analysis. Like you, when, when you start, uh, at, at, when you start working in threat Intel, you usually find yourself having a specific, you know, area of expertise and, you know, people will come to you and be like, well, what's this community talking about? What's this community talking about? How are these people interpreting this? Um, you know, what what are what are these threat actors that you specifically study doing? Having a good collections and analysis program means you have to have a lot of different perspectives within threat intelligence to, you know, be able to cover mm-hmm. a lot of different ground. One of the things that LLMs do really well is they take priority intelligence requirements and apply that over arbitrary data. So you have, you know, a lot of, a lot of text in your collections program. You're, you know, uh, ingesting a lot of external threat data. Well, what are your PIRs? Because if you have those modeled somewhere, then you can apply them automatically to the data. And now suddenly it's not like a game of indicator matching or, you know, analysts writing a bunch of very bespoke queries that they have to check all the time. It's suddenly this like more broad, like, Hey, this matched with one of our PIRs. And, you know, this is the thing that we need a human to go look at now. 
And, you know, when they, when they look at that thing, they look at it with all of the context that like came in the connect, the collections yeah. pipeline, all of the matches with internal data sets, like connecting those dots is so much easier. And all you've done is basically reduce the task of reading and summarization, which I think are just these core capabilities that we keep skipping over. But, you know, we, we don't realize like, oh, this is a thing that people do all the time. They read and summarize data for us. No, I, I love that. Don't you have a, you have a project around this, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wrote, um, kind of like a, a proof of concept script for this, uh, up on my, my GitHub. Um, do you, do you have it? Let's, can you, uh, share and all right, cool. So you wrote this tool and you have it on GitHub and you actually have a recording here of it running. Is that right? Yeah. So this was an example video I put together, um, just to kind of like show functionality. That's probably the easiest way to walk through it. So we don't have to do a live demo. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm going to play. Uh, it was called Auto Analyst, and it's um, uh, for arbitrary file evaluation and, and summarization. Okay. So when it says Auto Analyst, what, what analyst is that? What, what kind of analyst? So it, it really depends. Um, it's it's data dependent. So your your analyst is going to be um, whatever uh, wh wh whatever the best analyst to analyze that data will be. Um, you know, and this this is you know, automations with LLMs supplant labor intensive and context sensitive analysis. That's what this is it's saying. Like, hey, like we can preserve context so that we know like which analyst we should choose, and we can make it a lot less labor intensive because we can have the LLM read it, uh, read all of our data as opposed to our, um, our our human analyst. Okay, so you're saying you send it arbitrary data, and it figures out what type of analyst would be best for analyzing it, and then it writes. What does it do based on that? So a, f a few things happen. The first thing that happens is we we send it this uh, this file, you know, with 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 whatever text we we have in it, and then there's some static analysis of the file, which is like file name, um, and uh, you know, like what the character encoding is, um, you know, how many how many lines of the file it is, total word count, whatever. Um, and then we also have uh, the model uh, take a look at, um, you know, like, well, well, what is the data itself? So we have it sample the data to say, what what is it? Uh, in this case, uh, what we're looking at is a bunch of uh, nine nine one one calls. These are fictitious nine one one calls, um, and we've got about four hundred ninety lines of them. Uh, and they have the call ID, timestamp, speaker, and text. So think of it as just like a CSV file that's full of these nine one one calls. Okay. Um, so if you were going to analyze this, you'd be like, okay, well, maybe I would like break them up by timestamp, or maybe I'd try and apply like some NLP to them so that I could tag them. Like, you know, there's all these, all, all these um, different types of approaches that you might take. Uh, in this case, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, send this to the, the, uh, the application and ask it to like pick the right, um, the right analyst. Mm. Okay. Let's skip ahead here for you. All right, so we drag over the file. All right, it's got the file name, file size. Um, it's got the character set. And now it's a, it, if we scroll down right here, which should do in a second, we can see the, the file analysis. So in this case, it's saying, hey, like the data in this file contains records of emergency and non-emergency dispatch calls. So the model sampled the data in order to come to this conclusion. 
It also says, hey, these were the data was sourced from dispatch logs. And the required expert to respond to this is an incident responder or a collections analyst. Mm. Um, it has indicators about that it wants to like collect. So things like immediate health issues, security concerns, location-specific distress cases, and then it has analysis considerations. And so what it does is it uses the summarization of the file to write two prompts for MapReduce. They're both dynamically generated based on the data within the file. And they're essentially looking at one of them looks at the indicators and the other looks at the analysis considerations. Mm. So go over all of the dispatch logs, look at those indicators, then go over all of the, the summaries and make this unified intelligence brief. So here we have the summarization report and it's, a, it's several paragraphs long and it's just summarizing like, Hey, like what happened? during this like one day of dispatch calls who had 490 calls today like go through them and tell me the ones that i care about based on the indicators wow really cool so so it's it's better than just sending this to like an ai or chat gpt or whatever because it it wouldn't have that step of like putting its perspective into a particular role based on the initial analysis yeah, yeah. Really cool and it, it, you know, it's it's also really benefiting from like our knowledge of what does like a good analysis look like because we've provided it to the model in the form of prompts and said, hey, like when you write this analysis, write it in this way, and it writes its own code to generate it. So it, it's it's like writing Python on the fly and then executing that in the course of in the course of running the script. So it's really mm -hmm. like taking all the steps together. Wow, that is really cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could do this for like thread intel. You could do this for all sorts of things, right? Yeah, I mean the the initial the initial goal was um, to really showcase the capabilities of putting uh, you know different um, different LLM capabilities together. So if you have few shot prompting, how do you get the most out of few shot prompting? If you have MapReduce, how do you get the most out of MapReduce? Um, and how do you like build some build a really like dead simple tool? This one took me like I don't know a day. And it's like, oh, I wish I had this when I was working in threat intelligence. Like this was like the, this would be like the core functionality of any you know first first level threat intelligence analyst role. It's like, hey, read all this stuff and tell me what I care about. Wow. And so have have you run it with uh, threat intel use cases? Like, what does that look like? What what would some example inputs and outputs look like? Oh yeah, I mean, run it with threat intel use cases. We run it with uh, command line arguments, network telemetry data. Um, in the case of uh, threat intel, we used um, three months of chat logs. We actually have we have up to two years of chat logs, but we we parsed it out into three month chunks. Um, so three months of chat logs that leaked from the Conti ransomware group, mm. and these are all in Russian. So you know, I, don't, I don't read Russian, mm. but. We're essentially asking, we're like asking the model, like, hey, here's my priority intelligence requirement as it relates to ransomware. And here's three months of leaked chat logs. Like, go through and look in each section, like look for my priority intelligence requirements, summarize them for me if they exist there, and then build me a summary of all those individual summaries. So now I have, you know, priority intelligence requirements mapped over three months of chat logs. And then it's distilled into only the information that I really need to you know, make a decision. Wow. That's really cool. And what's the name of this, this uh, project? Uh, so this one, I think I just called it auto analyst. Hmm. Um, but it's uh, the, the code is on, is on GitHub. Um, so yeah, we'll uh, share that. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. GitHub.com slash Avogabos, A-V-O-G-A-B-O-S. And um that's just the uh the 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 app isn't there, but the the code, the code that you need, all the all the pieces you need to put it together are. Um and you know, please, please uh you be be my guest to, to go there and, and and use it. Very cool. Well, this has been fantastic. Um where can people follow your work? Um, I'm on Twitter. I guess I'm posting a little bit more uh, lately, but uh, uh, Gabe Incognito on Twitter, uh, easy way to find me. Um, and uh, yeah, if you have any questions, you know, uh, interest in AI, interest in security, um, I would I would love to talk to you. So yeah, please reach out. All right. Well, let's uh, look forward to the next one and uh, can't wait to talk to you soon. Yeah, likewise. This has been a lot of fun, man. All right. Take care. Bye. Unsupervised Learning is produced and edited by Daniel Meisler on a Neumann U87 AI microphone using Hindenburg. Intro and outro music is by Zombie with a Y. And to get the text and links from this episode, sign up for the newsletter version of the show at danielmeisler.com slash newsletter. We'll see you next time. Beep, beep.